Welcome to the Free to Choose Media Podcast. In today's episode, Peter Diamond, MIT Institute professor, and Dr. Franco Modigliani, 1985 Nobel laureate in economics, talk about many different facets of Social Security, including its history, benefits, and future. In this week's Free to Choose Media Podcast. So I guess that perhaps the first thing we want to discuss is whether the institution of Social Security, that is, of a pension system which is compulsory and universal uh, is a good idea and what, what is its purpose. And uh, I think that person, I think it is a very good idea uh, because it requires or forces people to behave in the rational fashion of uh, uh, the rational fashion that is described in my so-called life cycle theory, which is a, a theory of saving, which is a, which is focused on retirement saving. Sort of my main contribution in this area is to point out that retirement saving, ex- by itself, explains a great deal of behavior uh, and uh, a great deal of the observable we have. And that model says that people should save when they need it least and have it when they need it most. And that means that uh, when they are young and earning, they should save money for when they are old and they have no longer earnings, but they want to continue a decent living. This is the, the background. Now, why should people be forced into that? Well, you can say on the one hand, they should be helped and the public pension funds will help them. But it goes beyond helping them, it forces them to do it. It forces them to behave in that rational way. And the justification, and I think Peter will agree and comment on this, the main justification is that there, there is what economists call an externality involved. That is, you don't, uh, when people are very poor and starving, that not only affects them, but affects everybody around them. So we want to make it as hard as possible for people ever to become so poor as to be a burden on everybody else. And to avoid that, we force them to save so they will have a, a, a decent living when they're old. Do you? I think there are a couple of things that are worth adding. You're absolutely right that the central focus of social security systems is providing income for retirees. But we shouldn't lose fact, sight of the fact that in the US and other countries as well, there's a disability program, which is a substantial part of the program as well. And there's protection for family members, and that comes really in two forms. Uh, one is providing benefits for children, uh, should an earning parent die while the children are still young. And a massive amount of uh, income is provided that way in the form of basically life insurance policies. Uh, and then secondly, after retirement, uh, some families increasingly now are to earn or couples, uh, but many remain, at least for a substantial part of their lives, as one earner couples. So this is also a device for protecting spouses that didn't have high earnings of their own. And that's a major concern because historically in the U.S., uh, when men were getting uh, private pensions and given a choice, Overwhelmingly, they chose single-life annuities. And as I know you know, uh, the poverty rate among widows is vastly higher than the poverty rate among elderly couples. Uh, so there are further concerns as well. Completely agree. And that's, of course, true <clears throat> of the American system. Uh, by the way, it should be noted that some kind of public pension plan uh, which is usually called Social Security, uh, exists in very many countries. In fact, just about every uh, advanced country, every uh, developed country has such a scheme. Most of them uh, imitations of the American scheme, and I think most of these do have a survivor uh, in, in clause, important survivor clause. Well, you say... Imitation, I don't want people to get the wrong idea. There, 
quite similar. There are a lot of differences, but in terms of, of age, the U.S. is a relatively young system. Compare with the Germans who started the Germans. In, in under Bismarck. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that is correct. That's a very surprising thing. But they came something like 50 years ahead of Roosevelt. That's right. <laughs> uh, but I'm also told that uh, uh, they thought it would not be a very complicated system because people could retire at 65. And most people were dead by then. <laughs> Life expectancy. Which now, at maybe 18, 20 years at retirement, was then many people didn't even make it. Uh, but the, certainly the concept was the same. Now, uh, I think that the other thing that has been common to all of these programs, and certainly has been the foundation of the American system, is the so-called pay-as-you-go financing. That's a very important aspect. Of the thing and pay as you go means that the pensions are paid from the, the current contributions of the participants. So the system collects money from the participants at some stated rates and then uses that to pay out the pensions. And this, I think, has been common to old systems, except that more recently. Uh, some countries have endeavored to get out of it, and I think we'll discuss that later when we think about the future of the system. I think there are a couple of things worth developing here. Uh, many countries started with systems with at least some degree of funding. This is not a zero-one element, either you're mm -hmm. fully funded or you have no funding. Mm -hmm. uh, many systems have some funding uh, and different amounts of funding as a result sometimes of uh, unfortunate investments. In some countries, inflation wiped out mm -hmm. the funding of Social Security. Mm -hmm. uh, that wasn't the case for the U.S. Uh, in the U.S., there were a series of decisions made that given the extremely high poverty rates of the workers who had had the Depression, the Great Depression, for a major part of their career, that going to an unfunded system or a less funded system was a way of providing benefits to these people early on who otherwise would have had very little. And as you know, we had an old age assistance program at the time, which was much, much larger than Social Security. That was to provide benefits for the poor elderly. And the idea here was to have a system which was not uh, means tested, did not include stigma and to get it rolling much, much earlier than would happen if it had been funded right from the beginning. But just because that decision was made at the beginning doesn't mean we have to continue it. We always have an option how much funding to do. Yes. <clears throat> the problem is that moving from an unfunded system to a funded system is usually <clears throat> extremely expensive, and somebody has to bear the burden. That's right. Exactly the reverse of exactly. how you got an unfunded system exactly. to begin exactly. with. Exactly. I mean, I, I think this is important to understand that as of now, an unfunded system looks very poor compared with the funded system. But there is a reason people didn't do it entirely because they were silly, but because there was a great advantage that you could start the system immediately, you would pay pensions from the very beginning. And uh, this has certainly been a consideration in other countries. Uh, in a funded system, you really do not get to get pensions until you have contributed for quite a while. And you don't get a full pension until you have contributed all your life. Before then, you get only very partial payment, and that creates a problem which is uh, what looks like discriminatory, looks like you create inequalities and so on. Of course, there are other ways of handling that. I mean, it could have been handled by continuing a program of assisting people who didn't have insurance, and rather than letting them in and create an unfunded system. Um, so <clears throat> that's the, the background. Uh, I think now why why uh, question the next question I think is why do we have trouble? Why do we have a problem with Social Security? We, we all hear that the Social Security system in the United States, uh, 
is on its way to, to becoming bankrupt, that uh, it will not be able to deliver the promises that it has made, uh, that is maintaining the contribution and the benefits, both that, that, that will become impossible in the future. And I think the reason for this, perhaps not fully understood, has to do with the fact that the in the pay-as-you-go system, the relation between what you put in and the benefits you get out is mediated by a couple of very important variables, namely the growth of income divided into distinguishing between population growth or, or the growth of the labor force, to be more exact, and growth of productivity of output per man in the labor force. These two components affect the relation between the two because uh, paying pensions out of people who are now earning means that between the time you pay in and the time you collect, the uh, contributions have increased appreciably, the more so the greater the growth. The contribution you're collecting now are proportional to the income now. And if that income has grown 3% per year, then in 40 years of contribution, there is quite a difference between what you paid in and what you can get out. And this uh, difference has been used this growth element, which acts like an interest rate, has been used in establishing the relation between contributions and benefits. Uh, and this relation has been established at the time when population growth and productivity growth were looked promising, shall we say. I don't know exactly what the projections were in the very beginning, but... Certainly in the post-war period when most of the big expansions right, of Social in the Security 50s. have happened, right, yeah. then both population right. and productivity right, right. were growing rapidly. What was the rate, kind of the implicit interest rate that was promised in the, up to the reform? Oh, I, I, I don't know no, that no, anyone no. has... Uh, but, I mean, there must have been something in establishing the benefit contribution ratio, there must have been a definite... Well, the, the actuaries uh, have always had a target of having balance over 75 years. Right. And given the payroll tax rates that were being chosen, that would then set a budget constraint on the hmm. benefits. I you mean the, that you started out from the payroll... They were, they were forecasting a long way out right from the beginning. Yeah. But I mean, you could fix the payroll or you can fix the bent... That's right. Or more generally, you could or fix... Both. A, 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 yes. Well except that if you fix both, they may be inconsistent. Yes. <laughs> you have to fix them No, but on a rolling basis, as you yeah. realize that the world isn't developing yeah. quite the way you thought, that's right. maybe it's growing change. faster, you can raise sure, benefits, sure, so sure. you could lower taxes. Sure, that's right. Now, there are a couple of things I think it might be useful to add to what you said. First of all, for the U.S. problem you've described, I think it's useful for people to see here a few numbers. Uh, that go with it, uh, because the word bankrupt, which is bandied around a lot, uh, gives an image of a system that has nothing left. And of course, sure. as you know, the payroll tax revenue will go on rolling in. So even if there are no changes in the system, and the, system, the trust fund hits zero in 2032, as is projected, uh, there's still enough payroll tax revenue rolling in to cover 75% of the benefits that are in current law. So the amount of additional revenue or benefit cuts or higher earnings on the trust fund needed to make the system sound for 75 years uh, is smaller than you might think if you thought there was nothing coming in after that. And the actuaries have said if we were to raise the payroll tax rate by about 2.2 percentage points that would be enough to keep it sound for 75 years. So that's a we noticeable pay, amount, but the, it's not the, enormous. The, given, given the current level of the trust fund, which is already substantial. The 
current trust fund is, yes. is around $700 billion, right. something on the order yeah. of that. That's right. So and that, that's a help. And then the payroll tax revenue is a help. And of course, if you raise the payroll tax revenue now, when the system is already running a surplus, you'll run a bigger surplus. And you'll earn interest on that. Uh, and all of that combines to, to give this kind of number. Well, <clears throat> I, I think my, my one comment is that the word bankrupt I would use in the sense that you cannot deliver what you promised. Yes. In that sense, there is bankruptcy. Now, it does not mean that you can deliver nothing. I mean, when a person uh, goes bankrupt, there are assets that can satisfy his uh, debtors, and there may be a substantial amount. But nonetheless, he was unable to fulfill the promises. I mean, it's in this sense that the word that's, is used. That's right. Uh, just, it's popular interpretations. Sure, sure. No, I mean, and I think it is, I think, Peter, I think you agree with me that that interpretation actually reflects an attitude which is, I think, very diffused among the young people. The young people are convinced that they will get nothing or something very little. That's right. Uh, if anything at all, by the time they get old. And uh, I mean, that is perhaps connected with this exaggeration of how serious the gap is. I mean, if they should simply say that they will not get as much as they get now. And that, by the way, is not just confined to Social Security, because Medicare presents it's very, very, very similar problems. I think, again, one, one needs to be a little bit more precise here. Um, Social Security gives benefits in relation to wages, and right. wages are growing. That's right. So that if wages grow 1% a year, which is about what the actuaries project, then in 30 years when the system has a trust fund hitting zero, wages are 30% higher. And so even if people can only get three quarters of what's in the law, it would be the same level of benefits as we have now. Right. It would just be a smaller replacement rate. That's right. <clears throat> that is correct. But, of course, uh, that is an important element. Oh, absolutely. It would be better to a very, a very strengthen the system. And, yeah, yeah. and uh, uh, well, 1% that you mentioned is the, the, the growth. Of course, there are uh, these different projections yes. from, from the actuarials. The, uh, the low cost, the intermediate cost, the high cost, and, and there are substantial differences between them, that is, that the experts find it very hard to make a reliable forecast. And one thing that is special about this whole problem is that we are dealing with very long periods. We are really concerned because it takes a long time to uh, correct things if they need to be corrected, to change things if they need to be changed. One of the reasons it takes a long time is that if things are changed, People who are counting on this source of revenue ought to know with great notice what's going to happen to them. Otherwise, you create some very serious uh, injustices. And uh, now the... Uh, uh, Franco, you, you picked up one of the central elements in the shortfall, talking about the slowdown in both population growth and productivity growth. Right. But of course, there are two more. And I don't know if well, you want Germany, to elaborate. Longevity. Longevity generally and the baby boomers in well, particular. That's a special short run kind of short. I mean, well, it's a long short years. run. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's a 40 year problem for them, right. essentially. That's right. Yeah. That is, yeah, but I mean, that, that's sort of a creating problem at one end. It should have produced some correction because as the baby boom come in, they should have increased the revenue of the system. And then when they go out and they get old and they receive right. the pension, Right. Now, just again, just to lay the groundwork here, uh, as people live longer, then the same tax rate can't finance the same benefit with the same retirement age. Something has to give That's right. just over the fact that That's people right. live longer. Right. And the plausible element, the thing that your life cycle theory would suggest, is that you work all three margins. Sure. You save a little more when you're younger which in Social Security means a higher tax. You get a little bit less when you're older because you're financing a longer time, and maybe you work a little bit longer. Right. And I think working a little bit longer is a very important component because the living longer is associated with better health conditions. 
and those are conditions that make it possible to work longer. Yes. So there is, and in no. fact, uh, some of the reforms that are suggested speak of indexation of the retirement age on life expectancy. You can imagine that we try to uh, change the retirement rate as life expectancy lengthens in such a way that the expected duration of retirement is either constant or changes less than the life expectancy. But even with the current system, without any reform, people who work longer get larger benefits because they don't have as yes. much of an actuarial reduction. So yes. today you can retire at 65 and get some level of benefits, but if instead you retired at 62, you only get 80% as much. So insofar as people are willing to work longer for higher benefits, that's in the system today. But if they go beyond 65, they also get higher benefits. They also get higher, all the way up to 70 when benefits start. Right. You've been collecting benefits for quite a while now. That's right, yes, but, but not right. That's right. It is. <coughs> but those dependent on my retiring, is I did retire, even though I go on working, but um, from the point of view of Social Security. No, no, your benefits are paid independent of retirement. That's right. Once you pass age 70. Once you pass age 70, you get a, a fixed. You, you get your benefits, whether you go on working or not. Or not, that's right. From 62 to 70, yeah. you have to retire to get them. And you still continue to contribute, I guess. Huh? Absolutely, that's yeah, right. That's, even the idea is that people who are earning are contributing to the general system, just right. as people who died before retirement were well, contributing to the general system. Well, uh, I think I would make there a certain difference, and the difference, and this is, I think, important in terms of the overall philosophy, uh, is that uh, I, I do not like to consider Social Security as uh, a service like the others, which is to be paid by taxes. I like to think of Social Security as a compulsory saving, and I like to think of uh, Social Security contributions not at all being a tax, but being compulsory saving. It's something that you save now. There are difficulty in this conception, unfortunately, because uh, the individual saving are not national saving, but this we will discuss yes, in a but moment. There's another element which I think is terribly important, which is in addition to being savings, and that is certainly the foundation of the system, right. it's also a way of providing insurance. Yeah, and sure. when you provide insurance as an annuity, then the people who live longer collect more, and that's the way the system's yeah. supposed to be. That doesn't contradict the saving element. Similarly, the people who die before retirement might have lived a long time, so that again is the way sure, insurance works. Sure, sure. And the third element, which is often forgotten, is there's a lot of randomness in how long a career people have. And you would like to be able to ensure that if you end up losing your job in your early 60s and you can't find another good one, you'll do better than if you're lucky and you have tenure and you're at MIT and you work a long time. Uh, so insurance of the length of working life is again a, a way that has to get away from just the most narrow focus definition of savings for retirement. Uh, well, I'm not sure that I follow all of this. First of all, the question of an annuity, uh, that is fully consistent with the notion that you are, before retiring, you're saving for your retirement. And the retirement, when you go into retirement, then you get, you get an annuity, which is yes. guaranteed uh, for the length of your life. Then, of course, but there is an element the, of insurance. Some live longer, some live shorter. And it's, yeah. uh, it, it's essentially the same way when you insure your house. Some have fire and they collect. All the others have no fire and they're paying. Yes. But the way we have Social Security set up, there are two elements of insurance involved. One is for the people who do reach retirement they get their benefits as an annuity. And the second aspect, since it's basically a deferred annuity and not an immediate annuity, as you're saving along the way, the people who, a single person with no dependents who dies before retirement, the estate doesn't get anything but a, a small amount. That money is used to finance the benefits 
for people who live longer. Right. So there are two aspects of that insurance. It's not just that you collect this an annuity which you could buy at retirement, but also earlier on you're committing the money, you're forced to commit the money so that you'll only get it back if you live that long. And the element of the length of working life has, I think, the same kind of character to it. It's like committing to pay for insurance annually, but you don't pay uh, in certain circumstances. Well, that can be a form of insurance as well. Yeah, well, uh, the fact that <clears throat> before retirement, if you die earlier, uh, uh, you, you benefit the rest. I mean, that, of course, is simply uh, included in computing your contribution rate. Because we know that That's right. <clears throat> you want to give everybody the same rate, and then you know that some people will die early, sometimes earlier, and those that die earlier make it cheaper for those <laughs> who live longer, live longer and make it actually cheaper for everybody. I mean, in fact, some people never reached the point at which they draw a, the annuity, just makes the other people. So, uh, <clears throat> I mean, this, the, the aspect of insurance before, uh, in terms of when you die, doesn't strike me as being making a substantial difference. Whereas the, the survival insurance, of course, is indeed. And that insurance comes in whenever you die. That is, you may die much bef before retirement, or, and you get benefits, and you can die after retirement, and you still get benefits. The survival gets benefits. Yes. That, that is indeed an important aspect. Franco, shall we talk some about the elements of reform? I think, I think we should. Uh, perhaps, uh, uh, I would like to make <clears throat> one point in terms of comparisons across countries. And because that's significant to also to some other later discussion, there are, <clears throat> while the system of this kind exists in many countries, the parameters that characterize the system are very different. And of course, you have to distinguish here between parameters that reflect the behavior of nature, that is, for things that are independent of your will, like population growth, productivity growth, that you do not control, and parameters that are choice parameters, of which the most important ones are retirement age, which determines life expectancy at retirement, and the so-called replacement ratio, which is the ratio of uh, what you get when you retire to some measure of your life income, some measure, which is quite different in different places. And the uh, one sort of surprising thing, well, these things determine, on the one hand, what you get, but also these things, these various things I've mentioned, given the replacement rate, determine how much you have to contribute. And uh, it's one of the amazing things that uh, few people appreciate is the fact that in this country, the contribution rate is around 12.5% now. In Europe, it is enormously higher. In Italy, France, Germany, it gets to be something like 30%. And uh, the reason for the difference, I mean, one important reason is that in those countries, they have chosen a much higher replacement rate. Typically, in Italy, 70 to 80 percent. Uh, in Germany, I'm told that if you take into account that Social Security is accompanied by private pension funds, that very frequently the replacement rate is over 100. That is, when you retire, you get a higher income than when you were working. And I think that it is worth mentioning that there are useful or relevant considerations in setting the replacement rate. Uh, that the European, say especially, I know best Italy because it's a country I know very well, those 80% replacement rates have two implications. One is that you have this huge contribution rate, which is a great problem because 
not only people have to pay it, but also makes the difference between working and non-working much larger, much smaller. In other words, if you take a job, much of the earnings disappears into this 30%. And that, that encourages black markets and encourages uh, uh, unemployment and so on. So it's a very serious problem itself. But behind this very high rate is also a certain conception of the government. And I think you get to a basic conception, a basic difference between the United States and many European countries, namely the notion of trying to limit the role of the state. In this country, the notion is that 50% is the minimum to give you a decent living. Beyond that, you can decide that you want to consume more when you're old, but you do it on your own. So you have voluntary saving on top of Social Security. In Europe, on the other hand, perhaps because have no confidence in people or because the government is uh, used to direct people, to tell them what to do, they force them to save. But then, after they save so much, there is very little room left for individual uh, voluntary saving, which is, again, a negative thing. So, in considering this, I think it's very important to take into account uh, to what extent you want to play between these two elements. One to do people retired with a decent living and at the same time leave them room to make their own decisions to decide whether they want to be all rich or be all less rich. That should be left to them to decide. And I think that the American solution is, is sound. Now, one has to add one other important thing in the social security system of this country and most countries. And that is that there is a certain redistributional element. That is, in principle, in the United States, say, people get a pension on the basis of what they have contributed. But that is modified by the fact that the rich people get somewhat less and the poor people somewhat more. Or put another way, the replacement rate for rich people may be as low as 30% and for poor people, as much as 60 to two-thirds. And that's a very important element that helps, of course, uh, poorer people have a decent retirement. That is a very important part of the system and one of the most progressive elements in the U.S. One of the uh, most progressive, I see. Economy. Okay, it's not quite as progressive as it appears because people with higher incomes tend to live longer after retirement. Yes, yes. So that there is a bit of an offset there, but the system remains quite progressive and transfers large sums of money to people who would otherwise be in poverty. The number of elderly kept out of poverty by Social Security is very large. That is right. And there is, of course, one other element which also differs across systems. Uh, in the case of Italy, for instance, for a long time, the uh, replacement rate was on terminal income. Uh, in this country, it is on the average of something like 35 years. Your best the 35 best 35 years. years. The yeah, average, and that's the basis. And the indexation of the terminal income turns out to be a very unfair component of the Italian system, for instance, because it favors rich people, because rich people are people whose income grows, okay, or people whose income grows tend to be richer in the end. So if a person that is a low, low kind of employment, a ditch digger, has a very stable income, and one that has a very high rising income, and when they retire, the one with the rising income has a larger proportion of his average income than the person with a flat profile. That's another now, that's been changing also in Italy, but this is another important angle. There's one more important difference between the US and European countries, and that's the incentive to go on working beyond the age at which you can first claim benefits. And in the US, by, we've already talked about it, how you only get 80% at 62 of what you'd get at 65, and as a result, while a lot of people retire at 62, a lot of them continue working. In many of the European countries, there's little or no 
increased benefits for additional work, and people are much more likely to retire right at the age at which you can first claim benefits. Yeah, well, there are also some interesting questions as to whether one should tax the income of people above their pensions or not. That's, that's now, Franco, shouldn't we be talking yes, about, about reform? reforms? That's <laughs> it. I think that is correct. Let's talk about reforms. So uh, <clears throat> why don't you start out, because I have my own uh, battles to wage. I have my own uh, reform that I'm pushing very hard. And I think Peter should talk in general about the, the reforms that are being considered. And I then will sp speak about why mine is different. Okay. I think there are, are really three issues uh, with the general big picture of how to restore actuarial balance and reform. And we'll concentrate on that, although the President in the State of the Union address talked about the need for reform to help widows and the need for reform to encourage more work uh, among people eligible for benefits. But those, I think, are the kinds of, of changes that there'll be a lot of agreement on, and it's the nature of the central reforms that I think are more important. And there are three elements that are important. The first on which economists are almost universal is to have more funding for Social Security, whether it's done through a central fund or whether it's done through individual accounts, if we can increase national savings by channeling additional funding into Social Security rather than having a tax cut or rather than having more spending on government consumption, uh, that will be good for the economy and that will be good for the stability of Social Security. And this is something, while a lot of disagreement on how to do it, that economists are pretty much universal in thinking would be a good thing. And I think we might say at this point that even Congress seems to be agreed on this notion. I mean, they have agreed that a large fraction of the surplus should be pledged to Social Security. Uh, it's, I'm not sure that that's quite right in the sense that then I haven't seen a proposal to add additional resources to Social Security beyond the way the surplus will build up the trust fund. Mm -hmm. And the proposal is, is merely not to spend that by running bigger deficits on the rest of the budget. You mean the 62% is essential? Well, the 62% is, is the president's number. And the president is proposing to give additional resources to Social Security. Right, right. And in addition to what it has. In addition to what it, it will get. From the surplus that it now has and, this, and the trust That's funds. That's right. Now, under the President's proposal, the non-Social Security budget is not pressed into immediate balance. That won't come for a couple of more years. And some of the Republicans have been saying, well, let's tighten up the non-Social Security budget and move that to balance more quickly than the President proposed. But the, and this is, of course, still in the very early stages of this Congress, uh, but the, they, I haven't seen proposals to transfer additional funds uh, to Social Security. So that's element number one. Increase national savings uh, and do it in a way that bolsters Social Security. And of course, if we don't, if we run a balance on the rest of the budget instead of running a deficit on the rest of the budget, that's also helping on national savings. Yeah. One always needs a baseline uh, to compare with. The second issue, um, that isn't quite as universally agreed to, but is widely agreed to, is the issue of diversifying the portfolio. Currently, Social Security Trust Fund is completely invested in long-term Treasury bonds. And while they're safe, they pay a low interest rate, because in the U.S. capital market, and who knows about the U.S. capital market better than you do, Franco, you get higher returns by taking on more risk, and Social Security as a system that's going to be around for a very long time and that has a continuing flow of payroll tax revenue can afford to take on some of this risk on behalf of the workers and the beneficiaries. Individuals are not advised by Wall Street advisors to hold no stocks or hold no corporate bonds and to have only Treasury bonds. And private pension plans never go that way. 
And so some people are arguing the trust fund, however much money is in there, ought to be a diversified portfolio. Other people who favor individual accounts uh, also favor diversification. They just want to do it differently. Nobody has proposed that there be individual accounts that, again, only hold treasury bonds. Insofar as people can control what they can invest in, all the proposals include giving them access to stocks. So again, there's a lot of agreement among economists that a diversified portfolio, taking on some risk for a better expected return, is a good idea. The third element and the central dispute between the president on the one hand and the Republicans in Congress on the other is whether we should move away from our current defined benefit system where the benefits are set by Congress so that, for example, the poorer people will get a higher replacement rate and toward a system of, called a defined contribution system where what you get out depends on how much you put in and how much that has earned. Now you can, of course, do some redistribution around that system, but it's on a very different political basis, a very different psychological basis, and comes out differently. The president wants to continue our basic central trust fund, one system for everybody, and many of the Republicans in Congress are pushing instead for an individual account system where people would control investments and then what they would get in retirement would depend critically on how well they had invested and how much they had put in in their own taxes. Uh, <clears throat> that is, uh, I think, all uh, right and correct, only that I think you have gone a little fast and not explained some of these terms, like what do you mean by personal accounts? It's a very important issue. Uh, Perhaps it is good to have a bit of background, again, by looking outside. Uh, the first, let's start by recognizing the following proposition, that the so-called pay-as-you-go system, which we use in this country and in, used to be absolutely general, can be shown to be much inferior to a funded system. A funded system being one in which the contributions of the participants are not used to pay pensions, but are accumulated, invested in financial assets, and then at retirement, the accumulation is liquidated in principle to provide an annuity. Now, Franco, didn't you just say earlier today that the problem with the funded system is you've got to find the resources to fund it? So that to say that a funded system is clearly better than an unfunded system is really making a statement about who you would like to see get more and who you would like to see get less. Mm -hmm. And at different times, the answer will come out different. No, no. I mean, what I mean by a funded system is better. I mean, consider two systems which are going. Okay? One started out being funded and the other started out being page ago and they have rich maturity. At that point, the one that is funded is far better than the, than the pay-as-you-go for three fundamental reasons, and they have to be understood. The first reason is that it is much cheaper. The funded system requires much less contribution. I have a table that I have we can look into, but just to give an example, a limiting example, uh, if you have a social a pay-as-you-go system and there is little growth in the system, say close to zero growth, and you want to provide a 50% replacement and 16 years of retirement or something like that, you need to save to contribute 20% of your income. If you had a system which was a funded system and the rate of return on your investment was a 5%, then all you would need to pay would be about 4%. 20%, 40%. So it's immensely cheaper. And that is because in the funded system, you accumulate capital, and the interest on the accumulated capital contributes to pay your pension. 4% you pay, 16% comes out of the accumulation that you did, and that's how you pay the 20% pensions. So this is the first element.
The second and very important element is that the pay-as-you-go is a system where the relation between contributions and benefits is very sensitive to the rate of growth of population and income. Uh, the 20%, which I mentioned before, if there was no growth, would become 9% if you had a 2% growth of productivity and a 1% growth of population. So it's extremely sensitive to this kind of thing. The funded system is amazingly insensitive to changes in the situation. The most important element of this is population growth. The funded system, I mean, the page you go depends on population growth because the old people are paid by the young. If there are many old and few young, then there is, there has, you have to have a large contribution or you can't uh, honor your commitments. Under a funded system, growth is in population growth makes no difference because you, your pension is not paid by the young, it's paid by your capital. And finally, the funded system contributes to the national capital and national saving because what you save is used to accumulate, to buy assets. Whereas under the page you go, this is all wasted, goes into consumption. So these are the three major reasons, and there are quite a few other. Franco, now things are getting lively and fun. Okay. Right, so sure. let, let, let me give the three arguments against this. You talked about the funded system that contributes to capital, otherwise it's wasted. But waste seems like a funny term to use when what you did was use the money to keep the elderly out of poverty in earlier years. Now, we both agreed that we ought to have more funding than we have now, but we ought to recognize that um, the system is not funded for a, a good reason, not a bad reason. Secondly, while the um, funded system is not sensitive to the birth rate, it's still very sensitive to life expectancy. You accumulated a different, at a given rate, and then when you hit retirement, the benefit you can have depends on how long you're going to live. So it's still very sensitive, not as sensitive to population growth. Yes, you have here um, some numbers, which I'm sure you'll, you'll give us. And then the third thing, of course, is that the funded system is very sensitive to the rate of interest, which the pay-as-you-go system is not. And in your numbers here, let's just take a, a number. If instead of 5% a return on assets, which you said was a 4.5% uh, tax rate, you only got 2% on your assets, then you've got an 11.25% uh, tax rate. So there are other sensitivities instead. There are good things and bad things about both systems. Uh, and it's an important choice, and we both favor more funding. Uh, but it's important, I think, to, to keep in context uh, what's going on. And I think one of the differences between us is you would like to see it completely funded, right. and I would be perfectly happy to see it half-funded. And right. one of the problems with the political okay, discussion right now, issue. a very important issue, but let's show where we are compared to the political discussion. Because while there's been a lot of discussion of building up the fund, the President and the State of the Union address made it very clear that his proposal was not sufficient to solve all the problems. And my fear is they'll just barely solve the problems. So they'll build up a fund and then they'll run it down and we'll end up at the end of 75 years without a fund. I think the system should build a fund and maintain it. And instead of having a target, which they have now, of one year's expenditures as a cushion at the end, there should be four or five years expenditures in the fund. Now, with your fully funding, that would come out to be about twice as much as that, I would guess, is how big the fund would be relative to annual expenditures for a fully funded system, maybe a bit more than that. So a bit more than what? The ratio of how big the fund is to how big annual expenditures are. Yeah, I mean, the ratio of the, of the capital to of the... Of the capital yeah. to the flow. That, that, yes. What do you want? I would like to see a ratio of, of say, five. Of capital to expenditure? Yes, that means you're still relying on pay-as-you-go for a, a big chunk of what you're doing. That, this I has to do with how big a tax rate you're willing to have to I would build think up that a if fund. you have a capital which is five times expenditure, 
relative to wages, I take it always. Right. Uh, you don't need anything else because five times, even only at 4%, is 20%, which is more than what you need. I mean, the, the no, 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 I'm talking about relative to annual expenditures. So if you've got a fund which is earning 5% on five times annual expenditures, That's you're right. covering 25% of expenditures. Five times expenditures. So you, you, you're thinking about relative to wages. I'm talking about relative oh, to the flow oh, 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 of benefits Not to wages, paid. but to expenditure. Okay. To expenditures. And, and expenditure relative to wages is in the order of, what, 10, 15%, something like that. Yes. Depends so, when. But. So it's, it's partial funding. Yeah. Um. Well, uh, you see, with regard to the study of there was good reason for doing it then, well, I mean, that's not obvious at all. I mean, there is, it's no reason, the decision was made there that it would be paid by all the futures. Okay? It could have been paid by those present there. They could have continued to provide the pension out of taxes and let the bill. The but bill. I think what we can both agree on is that it's history. That is what it's history. It's no. history. But the point is that, and building a fund now, is good, but we have to pay for now, it. We both agree I with mean, that. so in other words, let's forget about the past. I mean, uh, I'm not sure that I would have been against it then. Uh, I know that I would be against. From what I know now, I would make a lot of. Uh, I would try very hard to let people think of what they're doing, because uh, it's not only that uh, they uh, avoid. I mean, they're avoiding a cost then which they carry throughout, because ever since then, they are poorer than they should be. Because if they had started a, pay, a, a funded system, there would be a much larger capital that would be helping uh, carry the, the cost of retirement. So I think that a very important question is, uh, looking forward, is whether we can, uh, we can afford to shift from one to another. And that's a question of how, how it can be done and how much it would cost. Uh, the <clears throat> question, the sensitivity to the interest rate is true. On the other hand, there is uh, you know, no reason to think that the future will have to be very different from the past. And past experience suggests that 5% for the entire portfolio of all assets in the country, of all marketable assets, is not an unreasonable number. Over the post-war period, the earning has been more like six. Now, five may be a little high, but it's not very high. And I think to think of two, well, I mean, a tragedy is possible, but I think that it's very, very unlikely. Yeah. Franco, I think we also need to make clear to everybody that we're both talking about real rates of return. Oh, absolutely. And not return. nominal rates absolutely, of return. Absolutely, return. Absolutely, sure. And that's why I was saying that now it's invested in government bonds, which are not indexed. Which we, these are ordinary, 3% they are earning, whatever it is. Well, they're earning a lot more than that, but they're earning no, about, or, or, about, about 2.5% real. They are now earning 2.5% real, I see. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, but, but they are invested in ordinary bonds, and which are not. Long-term Long -term treasury bonds, which happen bonds. to be higher than inflation. But, uh, and, and historically have been. Yeah. The, the treasury, well, treasury bills haven't done better absolutely. than inflation. Treasury but treasury bonds... Have, if in the held US, to maturity, if held to maturity, have consistently yeah. on long yeah. horizons if done held better. To maturity, that's right. Otherwise, they've done sometimes miserably, but held to maturity. The stock yeah. market has sometimes done miserably. Oh, absolutely, too. absolutely. So it's long-term averages that are relevant on both the agree. stock market I and the agree. bonds. I would agree. That's what I'm talking about when I say five. I'm looking at at least a ten-year average. Now, the question then is, actually now let me then make the next point, and that is the question that not only it is a lot cheaper, but the sensitivity is so much more. In other words, you can find, you can start out in the expectation that productivity will rise 2% per year and then discover that it doesn't rise at all, and the change in the contribution rate is minimal, very small. Population growth makes no difference. Productivity rate makes small difference. So you can have changes of the order we have experienced recently, which lead to this tragedy, namely that in the past we grew at 3%, and in the future we expect to grow at one and a half or something like that. This difference is difference between solvency and insolvency. That's no problem. We have a funded system. Small changes will do it. 
and even changes in the interest rate, although more serious, do not require dramatic changes. Okay. Uh, the difference in social in pays you go, if you have a zero growth or you have three percent, is from twenty to eleven. If you have a funded system, you talk about a couple of points at most. Some make no difference. Some couple of points. So you have the great advantage that's much more flexible. You have another advantage that you can decide to make changes. Decide that the uh, coverage rate, instead of being the replacement rate, instead of being 50, should be 60, or instead of 60, should be 50. That's very easy with a funded system because you say from now on, anybody that comes in pays the new rates. It's very almost impossible in the uh, pay as you go system because you create a hole. If you say that from now on, we will contribute to a smaller future benefit, then you pay less and you have a hole in terms of who pays the pension for the past. Matured. So these are great advantages that you have in the system. So the next question here is what I want to hear with what Peter really thinks is that <clears throat> it is very costly to move from one to the other. And uh, there have been a few countries that have tried to move from the find, I'm sorry, from the uh, uh, unfunded to the page you go to the funded system, in which the best known case is that of Chile. The Chileans have done that uh, a few years back, and they're very proud of what they've done. And essentially what they've done is they have created the notion of personal portfolios, of personal accounts. That is, each person puts his money, he's forced to save, he's forced to put the money, he's to contribute, but the contribution goes in his own personal account, which he can invest as he wants, that is, he can choose between a certain number of funds, which the government has decided, but they can choose among them. And this proposal has been repeated in this country, so particularly by Professor Feldstein of Harvard, but many other people have had this notion of creating a personal account by deviating money from the social security into a personal account. Once it's in a personal account, it becomes funded because in the personal account, the account is invested in assets. So you are essentially moving away funds toward funding, which is the kind of thing you've done. And Professor Feldstein has suggested that 2% be placed there, and other proposals have various numbers of this kind. Now, uh, the important element is that, again mentioned by Peter, is that when you do that, that portion that is invested in your personal account, the benefits from that are no longer defined benefits, but become uh, a, uh, what is the word? Defined contribution. Defined contribution. There is a defined contribution. The outcome depends on how well you did in defined benefits it's defined from the beginning. Now, in the present system, we have defined benefits. Now, what uh, essentially uh, I am proposing together with some co-authors is to move to a new fund, which is a defined benefit fund, which will essentially be fed initially by some additional contributions which will decline gradually as the new fund grows. And as it grows, it is able to pay pensions to whoever is entitled to a pension, namely those who have been have reached retirement age. Whatever money they have, they're entitled to a pension. This pension money is used to reduce the contribution to Social Security. And you can push this, continue with this system until this new fund reaches maturity, and if you have the correct contribution, like the figures I quoted before, then by the time the fund is mature, it can replace Social Security altogether. Now, a fund takes a long time to mature, and therefore this is a long-term proposal. If you start it today, you have to figure something like 60 years before you reach the full maturity. Of course, much of the effect is, occurs earlier, but the full effect really takes a long time. So this is a very long-run proposal, and there is a cost in front. There's a front cost. 
Namely, you have to start this fund, and that requires additional contribution. And the important idea here is that we should use the surplus of the budget to fund this initial cost so that people don't have to pay more, but be funded by the surplus. And as Peter has pointed out, funding it from the surplus means that the surplus is used to increase saving, because as the government uses the surplus to pay to Social Security or to the new system, the new system buys bonds. Okay. So it's the same thing as retiring, retiring the debt, at least for a long time. Eventually, there is uh, interest to be paid. But So it has the same ad advantages of, uh, of preserving the surplus to increase saving. Okay. And of course, for this system to go, you have in the beginning to increase saving. It either has to go to be the government that does it, or it has to be individuals. But you do have this front cost, and this front cost is, I think, as Peter points out, the additional savings that are needed to build up this additional capital until you get there. So I think that this is a way that we should pay a lot of attention to now, because we now have the surplus. For 15 years, we have a surplus, apparently. And that would make this whole system very much more uh, visible. I agree. More savings is a good thing, and the surplus is an opportunity to do that with less political pain. Uh, but it's not going to be enough by itself. So one would have to anticipate some kind of tax increases yeah. down the road after the surplus was no longer contributing to it. Well, here I can simply say that I've made some, some I try to figure it out. I have so-called simulations, and I find that uh, it depends on what assumptions. There are these three assumptions. The uh, favorable one, the so-called low cost, medium cost, high cost. I've tried the low cost. And in that case, there is uh, absolutely no need. No. No need. But and of course, it, in the low cost estimate, there's also no problem for the existing social security system. Well, It, it never the, runs out of money with a low cost estimate. Never completely no. runs out of money. But we have the president's estimate, which is if we took the money the president is proposing to put in Social Security, that's not enough to uh, get the system through 75 years. Franco, okay. why don't you tell us about the advantages of your uh, plan over the kind of individual account plan? First, I would like to say that I've made calculations, and I find that if the government will give us 4.5% of payrolls, for 15 years. With that amount, we can move to a fully funded system without ever running out. We are very close to running out. Even if we do, we could borrow for a short while and then repay it. So within a reasonable time, we could get back to the system. Four and a half percent of payroll in addition to the current payroll tax rate. In addition to, I mean, the, yes, four and a half percent of payroll. Give, four four and a half percent would be given by the government to be to be put in this individual accounts. In addition to in addition the payroll to tax the payroll taxes which continues. Now the payroll continue. taxes continues now. Right. You get four and a half, but fifty, sixty years from now, the tax, the, the payroll tax has gone from twelve and a half to about four and a half. No, actually five point two. Well that, you're only talking about retirement. Don't forget there is about three percent needed for disability. Right. So that would still that, be that on would top. have to be I mean that has to be calculated. Uh, in any event, the uh, important features of, of my plan is that I do want to have individual accounts, but these accounts are really only so that people understand where their money is going, so that people realize that Social Security is not a tax. It's something that goes into their own account, and they should protect it. They should have more confidence because the money will be there. Secondly, this is very cheap to manage because I want all the investment, all the contribution to be pooled, invested by the Social Security in a portfolio which consists, it's an index, that is, consists of a composition to imitate the market composition. There is no possibility of uh, uh, discretion. It can be managed mechanically by private people. So, and the cost is extremely low. Uh, managing an index portfolio is a very cheap thing compared with individual accounts, which are extremely, uh, very costly. And finally, 
that they find Franco, if, if I could just hang a number on what you've just said, because this yeah. is a terribly important point. The Investment Company Institute, which is a private sure, industry sure, group, sure. did a study in 1997 of how much, what percentage of assets were charged for people investing in equity mutual funds right. in 1997. Right. And the answer was one and a half percentage points, 150 basis points. And that's the cost, the kind of cost we would have running an individual account system where the individuals are making their own choices out of all the arrays in the market. And while one and a half percent doesn't sound like a big number, a big number. that's collected every single year over your 40-year well, I mean, career. It's a very simple question. Imagine that the thing yields six percent. One and a half percent means that one quarter of what you're earning is the cost of administering. So it's, it's a huge cost. It's a huge cost. Yeah, huge cost. Uh, in, for the government, it would cost a few basis points, and that's a very great advantage. And the defined benefits versus defined contribution, again, I regard as a very important, the essence of a social security program to give both certainty, that is as much certainty as you can have, in the defined benefits, you know what you're going to have. In the defined contribution, you don't. And next, which I regard as very important, is that you get the same pension per dollar of contribution, appropriately accounted, uh, whereas in a defined contribution, some smart people get to have more and some less smart people get less. Not everybody can have more than the average. So you have to figure that uh, you create unnecessary inequalities. And I say that with respect to the compulsory saving, the result should be the same for everybody. And we know that investing in a portfolio which consists of all the assets, it's a good portfolio. It's a portfolio which you, you can show to have some optimal properties. And of course, on your own account, you can change the returns by regulating your financial, personal finances in the light of what you have in there. And I want people to be more conscious to how much they have actually in this account. I think it's a very useful thing that could be accomplished without having the private accounts uh, which are create modern certainty and create inequalities which I think are necessary. So Franco, your goal is to have a system which has the advantage for people getting a sense of how the system works but continues to work very much the way our current system does with the one major change that it would be funded with a diversified portfolio. Right. And I think that's a wonderful aim to preserve the kind of virtues that we've had and is probably a wonderful note on which to finish today. Okay. And today, like many other days, I've greatly appreciated the opportunity to talk about Social Security with you. <laughs> it's been a long-standing procedure. And thank you very much for coming and enlivening this uh, session with your wisdom. Great. That was wonderful. Want more episodes like this? Don't forget to subscribe and get updates each week for the Free to Choose Media Podcast.